Good morning, Living Hope Church. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 6. Uh, that's where we'll be this morning. And as you're getting there, I'd like to introduce, I, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Mike Santoro. I'm not a pastor, but I've been at Living Hope Church as a member uh, for over 10 years. My wife, Rachel, and I uh, have been serving here at Living Hope. Uh, Rachel serves in the children's ministry in, your sec- in the second to third grade class. I'm a, currently a life group leader. I'm also an elder in training, so to speak, and um, I've served in many ministries over the years uh, that we've been here for the last decade. It's been children's ministry, youth ministry, uh, men's ministry for many years, Um, and also something interesting or unique about me is I'm I'm an aspiring church planter, so I I do have a a, um, non-ministry job right now, Um, and but about two years ago, if I can give a little testimony... As our church has been um, joined the Acts 29 network, there's been this um, emphasis and push to plant churches through Living Hope Church. Everybody knows here that Living Hope Church was itself a church plant 16 years ago. And so our desire is to plant churches. So I'm trying to answer that call uh, from within our congregation. And I've taken steps with the, um, with the support of Pastor Tim and the elders. Uh, I started taking seminary classes last year. Praise God, I've gotten through three classes, and I'm in my fourth class already, right now as we speak, actually, um, in the summer, over at um, Lancaster Bible College, where I'm taking some summer classes, but I'm uh, enrolled at Grimke Seminary, which is down in Richmond, which is partnered with Acts 29. It's specifically focused on equipping future and aspiring church planters. Um, so the, um, the goal here for me is I want to be a, perhaps a bivocational pastor, uh, which means in, in a few years, Lord willing, uh, we'll be able to plant and probably also still have a, a job, but still, still be a, uh, try to be a pastor. And so I know there's a lot of questions there. There's a lot of things that God has to work out, but I'm just trying to take each step in faith along the way to prepare. And um, with your blessing and hopefully the, the approval of the um, of the members here at Living Hope, I'll be become an elder this fall. I really look forward to serving in that capacity. And we also have a church planning residency, which Pastor Ed went through um, recently, and I'm hoping to be the next one there. I'm looking to maybe start that sometime next year. So please pray for my family. Pray for me. Um, pray for me first that I focus on pastoring my family well. And I want to be a good husband, a good father. And uh, I want to be faithful in my home, and so pray for me to find balance in my life um, as I pursue this um, and take steps. Pastor Tim has been so faithful and so uh, such a great mentor. Uh, the elders have been so supportive, um, and Pastor Tim, he's so wise, and he's making sure that I am putting my family first and that we are taking our time through this process. Um, so I'm grateful for the elders, and I'm grateful that God only wants teachable men. Um, and that I can say confidently, um, as hard as it was to get back into school, even though I love school, but after 14 years out of school, it was really challenging. And, um, and by God's grace and the support of my wife and Pastor Tim and others, um, I got through those classes and I'm, I'm thankful and I want to continue to pursue that. And I trust, I have full faith that God will, uh, his will will be done in this. And I'm just going to continue to faithfully step forward. So uh, I'm going to pray before we get into our our passage here, and uh, would you please bow your heads and pray with me. 
Father God, you are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the great I Am. You created the whole universe. You, you put the stars in place. You call us each by name. You know the hairs on our head. Father, I confess that don't always put trust in you the way we should. I should, Lord. I pray for your help, Lord. I pray that you can help me to deliver your word faithfully this morning. I pray for those who are here that they can receive your word. Come before me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So before I, um, before I read today's passage in Mark chapter 1, I want to introduce you to the characters that we're going to be meeting here in this scene. So we're getting into this scene, and the first important note is that Mark is telling the story. He's the narrator. So we're going to hear from the narrator, Mark, and then we're going to hear about the main character, which is going to be Jesus, no surprise. Um, also, his disciples are going to be with him. Those 12 disciples are going to be with him in this story. You're going to hear the Jews in Nazareth, and these are going to be people that are at the synagogue. So these are likely Jewish leaders, um, scribes and Pharisees. And then you're also going to hear reference to Jesus' mother, Mary, and you're going to see, hear references to Jesus' half-brothers, uh, those that Mary and Joseph had after Jesus was born. You're also going to hear about Jesus' half-sisters who likely are there, as will be identified in the text. So to recap, we have five different groups, Jesus, the, Jew, the Jews, in, um, his, Jesus' his disciples, the Jews that are in Nazareth um, at the synagogue. We have uh, reference to Mary, his mother, and his brothers, half-brothers and sisters, and also... Um, that's good. So, I also want to cue your listening as we read the passage, okay? So, listen carefully for the emotions of the passage. That's your cue. I want you to listen for the emotions that are happening in this scene in Mark chapter 6. And one thing I learned at Grimke, the seminary that I'm at, which I really like and I want to ask you to do is they ask, uh, they encourage us to have our congregation stand when the Word of God is read. So, would you please honor the reading of God's Word by standing, as we read from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. It's on page 841 in your Bibles in the back. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense to him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household, in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you... And they will not listen to you, then when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. 
And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And as the book of Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. As we arrive in chapter 6 today in the series Making Disciples, we find ourselves in the midst of a very intense scene with a lot of emotions. The first scene here is startling. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. Uh, it's, it's in some ways unbelievable that a, such a scene could even happen. By the end of this first scene, Jesus marvels at their unbelief. The event makes Jesus astonished, and in a bad way. This is not a good astonishment, and this And this is the God of the universe who expresses such an emotion, and that's a scary thought. What's going on here that that would cause Mark to capture and emphasize this emotion, emotional response from Jesus? And then afterwards, in the second scene, we see Jesus sending out the 12 apostles with specific instructions, gives them power and authority. Both of these stories together are teaching us what true believing faith looks like. That it includes not only believing in Jesus, but trusting and putting our faith in Jesus, but it also means being sent out on mission. And by contrast, these stories warn us what the opposite looks like. It looks like both unbelief and rejection, which can even, despite being up close to Jesus and believing some things about him, if you don't believe everything about him, Today we see up-close rejection versus faith on mission. So first verse here, and Jesus visits his hometown. He takes a trip back to his hometown where he grew up, and scholars believe this is a very small village in Nazareth, likely around 200 to 500 people. Almost all were probably Jewish. To give you a sense for how small this town is, It's about 10 acres, 10 square acres. That's it. Some of you here have farms that are probably bigger than that. Some of you have class sizes, if you're students here, who are bigger than 200 to 500 people. So you can imagine how everyone in Nazareth knew everyone. And there was no, uh, everyone knew everything, was in everybody else's business. And they knew each other intimately, just like you probably know your classmates and neighbors. There's no hiding, there's no keeping secrets Everyone's in everyone's business. And this knowledge is important to better appreciate the next verses. But before we get there, I want to draw your attention to the disciples mentioned here because in the first verse it says his disciples followed him into the town. And so here's a small glimpse at what we'll focus on in the second section, that true disciples follow Jesus wherever he goes. And if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to follow Jesus and learn from him and imitate him and obey him. Verses 2 and 3, we have a lot of unbelief and rejection. These verses start out, we see a common sight. We see Jesus teaching in the temple. Excuse me, he's teaching in the synagogue on a Sabbath. Jews, they would gather on a Sabbath in the synagogue. They would hear readings from the Old Testament and teachings from Jewish leaders and scribes and teachers. But what's noteworthy here is that Mark, the narrator, he does not focus on specifically what Jesus taught. He doesn't tell us what Jesus taught that day. He's drawing our attention to the emotions of the Jews that they're listening. Um, they were amazed and astounded by his teaching. But, but, 
they were amazed and astounded by his teaching, but we realize in the four questions that follow that there was, this amazement was not a positive amazement. This was not a marveling and a kind of beautiful wonder and appreciation that comes from a posture of reverence or respect, but rather these Jews were, were and they were not just resistant to believe, they were disdaining Jesus. They were rejecting him because they clearly did not believe his identity. They didn't believe that he was the son of God. They didn't believe that he had authority to teach. They did not feel that he was worthy of honor. They felt superior to him. And he had too much pride and to believe and they had too much pride to believe that he was the Messiah. And it wasn't just one person. Mark says here in verse 2 that many who heard him were astonished. And saying these things, Mark is telling us that there was a great consensus among the Jews in Nazareth who all seemed to share the feeling of disbelief. And we can see evidence of this in their four questions that follow at the end of this verse, at the end of verse 2 and into verses 3 and 4. In verses 2, they first say, where did this man get these things? They're accusing him of being a fraud. He's, he's, he, he's pirating, this, pirating this from somewhere else. These words can't be his own. He, he could not possibly be this smart to make this kind of profound teachings. He must have stolen them from somewhere else. That's kind of like what they're saying here. The next question they say is, what is the wisdom given to him? Someone gave him this wisdom, they're saying. It's not his. Someone gave it to him. He cannot be this wise on his own. He's a fraud. He can't possibly be this wise. He's pretending to be wise. He's a fake. He cannot, this cannot be possible. The next verse says, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Interestingly, the Jews are not denying the works and miracles Jesus has done. They're not denying that. They admit that his hands are doing mighty works, and yet they question what their own eyes are witnessing. They're denying the clear evidence. They have no compassion for the healed. They have, they're, they're not excited by his power. They're not responding like the crowds that we've seen leading up to this point. The crowds we've seen leading up to this point have been pressing into Jesus. They've been surrounding Jesus. They've been, been eager to hear his teachings. They're saying, nah, you're, you're a fraud. Get out of here. That's what they're saying. The next question is, is this not the carpenter? The carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are his, not his sisters here with us? Some scholars believe that this last objection was particularly disrespectful. You see, most people in the ancient cultures would identify themselves by their father's name. So in this case, it would be more appropriate for them to have said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Joseph? But by using his mother's name and said Mary, some scholars believe that the Jews were actually making a dig on Jesus by insulting him and saying that he was born outside of marriage in a scandalous way. Of course, we know Jesus did not have an earthly father. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's likely that they did not believe this birth story and were reminding him that they believed he was born in sin. Not only are they rejecting Jesus, but they are likely rejecting him with contempt. However, some scholars believe that, you know, it's possible that Joseph is not mentioned because, you know, maybe he, was, he had passed away. We don't know. But that doesn't impact the interpretations here because regardless, at the end of verse 3, the gospel writer of Mark is clear in confirming to us that they took offense to him. And that is what we should focus on. 
their offensive attitude. So what's happening here? Throughout the first five chapters, we see Jesus healing many people. We see him casting out demons. We even, last week, we saw him miraculously raise a 12-year-old girl from the dead. And yet, after that, all that evidence, Jesus returns home, and he's not received with a warm welcome. There's no absence makes the heart grow fonder here. There's no, hey, Jesus, welcome back. It's good to see you. We've heard so many good things. How's it going? No, there's none of that. It's more like, or, 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 or there's nothing that says that you would say, oh, we're so proud of you. You're from Nazareth, and you're, you're making something of yourself. There's none of that. There's more like this other quote that you might have heard before, which says, familiarity breeds contempt. Have you heard that before? Familiarity breeds contempt. I'm sure some of you can relate to this. Sometimes the more familiar you are with someone, the more skeptical you can be when they do something special. Because you perhaps see them as just ordinary. Let me give you a personal example. In my profession of recruiting, I often uh, see LinkedIn profiles of old friends from high school or college, and um, I see them doing amazing things, and, and I see some of them being promoted to, you know, senior vice president of this and regional director of that, and I, I look at, and sometimes I, I, I have to admit, I look and I'm like, I can't believe that guy is the senior vice president of a company that's that big, you know, because cause maybe I felt like when I knew him, he was an ordinary, or he was, he was a knucklehead, he wasn't anything you know, I just can't believe he's aspired to that. So, so maybe you've felt this kind of feeling before. The Jews are rejecting Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the Son of God, because they see him as they knew him their whole life for 30 years, a carpenter. He was an ordinary person, just a carpenter. Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, they said? Just a plain old carpenter? How can he say such amazing things. In their mind, a carpenter cannot be the Son of God. That's what they say. We'll come back to this idea in a moment, but uh, let's continue. How, how does Jesus respond to all this? I, actually, I, I do want to address this. I just want to pause here. Think about this. They're accusing him of being a carpenter, right? And we know carpenters. They build things. They make things. They build tables and chairs. They're very skilled craftsmen. Um, they fix things that are broken does this not sound like the God of the universe? I mean, isn't it amazing that the God of the universe comes into the earth and he becomes himself a carpenter? He is the carpenter of the universe and he becomes a carpenter. I think it's really, really neat that that's the profession he chose. So how does Jesus respond to all this? Mark records for us that he responded to this in verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives and in his own household. What does Jesus mean here when he says in verse 4, and among even his own household? I mean, surely those who had first known him in his household would know that he is the Son of God, right? Surely they would believe. Well, there's evidence in the Gospels that even Jesus' family did not believe at first. In Mark chapter 3, we read in verse 20 of Mark chapter 3, it says, Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when the family heard it, they went out to seize him. When Jesus' family heard it, they went out to seize him and they were saying, He is out of his mind. In John chapter 7, verse 5, the gospel writer of John tells us plainly 
in verse 5 of chapter 7, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now you might be saying to yourself, wait a minute, how can this be? How can Jesus' household and siblings who were closest to him physically more than anyone else on the planet for 30 years, how could they not believe he's the Son of God? Well, I'll tell you what, I would like to ask them myself. And I will in heaven, but for now, I think the most reasonable explanation is that Jesus probably intentionally did not reveal his power and authority and full identity until his public ministry began around the age of 30. There are lots of examples in in the Gospels, um, even in Jesus' early ministry, where he heals someone and then charges them not to tell others. Um, Like last week's passage with Jairus' daughter, after Jesus raised her from the dead in Mark 5, it says, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Mark also records Jesus silencing demons who identify him as the Son of God. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And the passage says, And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. These are just a couple of examples. There are many times when Jesus is careful not to reveal his identity too soon. And we also don't have any recordings of Jesus doing childhood miracles in the Bible. And I think that combined with the fact that they were rejecting him here in his own hometown, and they all knew him for 30 years. And, and by the way, they were scorning him and putting it down. It seems very likely that for 30 years, Jesus seemed rather ordinary, like nothing special, probably so ordinary that we can almost empathize with their shock. Uh, in, in, in seeing Jesus and, and in trying to understand how he could be the Son of God. Now, I want to be careful here to acknowledge the fact that while scholars believe it's possible that he seemed very ordinary, we also know elsewhere in the Bible that Jesus never sinned. So how you can be ordinary and never sin, I don't know. But in a broader sense, he might have seemed ordinary. And, and he was so perfect but yet he was still so perfect and he never sinned. And, and, and that would be something that would be extraordinarily... I mean, he was extraordinarily perfect. But they apparently didn't appreciate that. And, and I can kind of get this, and maybe you can kind of get, uh, get why they didn't appreciate that. Because, you know, I, I'm not perfect, but I'll tell you a, a quick story of when I was in high school. And, I, you know, I, I tried to do the right things growing up. And I remember... Um, there were times in high school when we would be, uh, I was playing a sport and a coach would punish us as a team and say, go run. And we'd have to go run this really long run way around the school, very far. And there were times when some of my teammates would say, hey guys, come on, let's take this shortcut. We are far away. Coach can't see us here. Let's kind of take this shortcut. Nobody will know that we're taking this shortcut. But here's the thing. If if not everyone took the shortcut, then it would be obvious to the coach that, that some were cheating and some were not. So they had to try to persuade and put pressure on those of us to, to comply. Maybe you've had this kind of a situation happen before where a group is pressuring you to do something wrong, and if you do the right thing, it's going to make everybody else look bad. I mean, I said, no, no, guys, we're taking the long way. Like, we're doing it right. They hated me. I mean, they hated me. I mean, there was, there was so much anger um, because I was trying to do the right thing or I wanted us to do the right thing. So I could see how if Jesus was perfect to the extreme that maybe some people that grew up with him didn't like him for that perfection. Um, and maybe that was fueling some of the feelings that we're seeing here. 
Verse 5 says, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And again, this was a bad marveling. Jesus was so astonished at their unbelief that he was unwilling to do any miracles there. Mark clarifies that he did heal a few sick people, so it's not that Jesus was inhibited here from, uh, from doing miracles. Uh, it's not that he was all of a sudden powerless. No, no, the scholars do not believe that here. Jesus is completely sovereign. He could heal and do miracles regardless of whether there was belief or unbelief. He healed many lame people with unbelieving Pharisees standing near, watching nearby. He raised Lazarus from the dead despite almost everyone around him mocking him and thinking that he was foolish for rolling the stone away at Lazarus' tomb. No, what, what's happening here is Jesus is choosing not to do many healings. Where there's an environment where there is such a grave rejection of him. Not just doubting him, but completely scorning him. And as I've said, by contrast, we see in other passages where the, the crowds were, were following him with this deep childlike faith. Some believe that if they just touched his garment, that they would be healed. The sick came to Jesus from everywhere. They brought the lame They brought those who had demons. And scripture says, even those who had little faith were healed and honored. But in this moment, Jesus chose not to do great miracles because of their grave rejection and unbelief. So what's the point here in this section? This is an important application here. So it's a major warning. So so listen, because this might be the most important exhortation that you hear all, all morning. You can be very close to Jesus and still not put your trust in him. I'll say it again. You can be very close to Jesus and still not put your trust in him. You can surround yourself with many Jesus-ish things and you can still not put your trust in him. You can listen to Christian songs and not believe their words. You can come to church and be in the, in the service week after week, physically present in the seats, and yet you can still completely ignore the Word of God in your heart. You can sit here and tune out the Holy Spirit with your, while your mind races to other earthly things and not heavenly things. You can be here, but your heart can be asleep. You can even talk a lot of Christianese, meaning you can say the right things. You can even sound like you're a faithful Christian, but yet you're, in your life you're not living it out clearly. And your life clearly shows that you're not living it out in obedience to God. You can be playing Christian, but not actually be a Christian. You can be very close to Jesus and still not put your trust in him. You can get very familiar with Jesus and still misjudge him. You can know quotes from Jesus and still misunderstand him. You can be around Jesus your whole life and still mistreat him like the Jews from Nazareth. You can spend a lot of time with others who are so familiar with Jesus, and yet you can still mistake his identity as the Son of God. You can believe some things, but not everything, and thus completely reject him. Closeness and familiarity, even for years, or even an entire lifetime, does not equal actually putting your trust in him as your Lord and Savior. You might even consider him a friend or part of the family, but is he your Savior? Do you honor him? One Christian pastor and author, Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Not a Fan, he put it this way. 
He said, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything of them. So you might be asking yourself, Mike, what then does it mean to actually put your trust in Jesus? Can you help me understand? Let me give you a brief analogy. Um, When you go on a plane trip and you're getting at the airport and you're going down the jetway and you're getting onto a plane and you kind of duck into that little plane from the jetway and you look to your left and what do you see? You see that little captain with his captain's hat is all ready, and he says, welcome aboard. And you said, thank you, and, and then you continue to your seat. At that moment, you are putting your faith in that pilot. You are getting onto the plane. You're not just saying, I know you can fly the plane. You're not just saying, I've seen your resume. Uh, you're not just saying, I've watched you fly a plane from the ground. You are saying, I'm getting on the plane. That is what it means to put your trust in something. Now, here, let me take this a step further. What if you get down the jetway, you get onto the plane, you look up to your left, and you see somebody that you know? What do you do? Like somebody that you really know for years. Do you pause? I mean, somebody that you didn't know was a pilot. Do you like, wait a minute, I thought I knew, I thought John was something else. What if, what if you get onto this plane, you look to your left, and standing right there with the captain's hat on is Harry Tinker. Harry Tinker is a faithful servant in this church. I love Harry Tinker. He is an incredible, um, incredible friend, and he has a, he's a, Harry is a handyman. Harry is a professional carpenter, in a sense. He's a hand, I mean, he can fix anything. And he has done so much work on my house. I am not a handyman. And so for almost everything I've had to call Harry and say, Harry, would you please come 35 minutes up to my house to work on all these different projects? And he's amazing. He's amazing. And I encourage you, if you've got projects, to reach out to him. But if I got onto this plane and I looked up to my left and I saw Harry Tinker standing there with his captain hat on, I'm going to (laughs) pause. And I'm going to say, wait a minute, Harry, when when did you become a pilot? And he said, oh, Mike, yeah, yeah, I've been doing this for years. You didn't know I, didn't, I don't really talk about it. You know, I've, I've got, you know, I, you know, this is just kind of something I like to do on the side. Really? Really? Okay. Um, like, and you've flown this kind of a plane before? Oh, yeah, 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 this is 57 flights. This is, you know, this is my 57th flight. This is, yeah, no problem. I've flown this plane. I actually, I went on this trip two times this week already. Okay. All right. I'm still pausing there. Like, because I know Harry. So for me to say I'm putting my faith in Harry, my trust in Harry, it's getting onto the plane and staying onto the plane. Now I can get on the plane and still be a little nervous, but I'm on the plane. That would be putting my faith. So that is an example of what we're talking about here. The, the, the Jews in Nazareth, they looked up into that pilot hat And they saw Jesus, and they said, no, Jesus is a carpenter. He can't possibly be a pilot. He can't possibly. And they were not willing to get on the plane. 
We need to believe in the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and Messiah. We need to believe in his authority. We need to believe in his power. And not every group believed all these things about Jesus. Let's look at some groups of people here. The disciples, they believed in his identity. I mean, they dropped everything to follow him. But they might at times have doubted his authority. When he calmed the storm at the end of chapter 4 in Mark, while in the boat, the disciples said, Who is this man that even the, the wind and the sea obey him? And yet Jesus honored their faith and was patient with them to mature. The crowds of people that would come around Jesus to be healed, they came to Jesus, they believed in his power to heal, they believed in his authority to cast out demons, but, but not all of them may have believed in his identity. They had to be taught. The Pharisees did not deny, think about this, the Pharisees did not deny his power to do miracles, but they denied his identity and his authority. After Jesus healed the paralytic man in chapter 2, they said, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees believed in his power, but they denied his identity and his authority. And think about this, guys. The demons. Demons affirmed Jesus' identity. And they affirmed his authority. And they affirmed his power. Just one chapter ago in chapter 5, A demon cries out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most Holy High God? Think about this. The demons knew and affirmed Jesus' identity. The demons yielded to his authority and power by obeying his commands, and yet they clearly did not put their trust in Jesus. So you could be sitting here and maybe realizing for the first time that you've just been a fan of Jesus for many years now and not a true follower Or maybe you're learning about faith and and you're hearing this for the first time. Well, let me share with you some good news. And that good news is believing in Jesus only takes a moment. It only takes a moment of faith to save your soul and to experience believing faith in Jesus. And if you're asking yourself, please, Mike, tell me, how do I put my trust in Jesus? Then listen carefully and I'm going to show you. Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, that he was immediately starting his public ministry. And it says here, Jesus came into Galilee, listen, and proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Repenting means turning away from your sins and turning towards God. It's turning away from your sins and turning towards God. Believing the gospel means believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But it's not just this knowing that this intellectually, it's not just that. Rather, it's putting your hope in that reality. It's believing that Jesus really lived the perfect life and died on the cross. Where he took our sins upon himself and he received the punishment that we deserve in our place and paid for our record of wrongs. Believing is also putting your trust in the resurrection That is, that Jesus not only died for our sins, but he conquered death for all time when he rose from the grave. And therefore, we believe in a living God and we have a living hope that Jesus will come again and restore all creation. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth and no more pain and no more suffering and no more death. And by repenting and believing, the Bible says you become a child of God. And you are loved as a child of God and you have new life in Christ while you're here on earth. And you are called to live this way in a way that is worthy of that gift that you receive 
We'll get back to that later. Because some of you might be sitting here and saying to yourself, Mike, I want to believe, I want to believe what you're saying, but I just can't right now. I have too many questions. I have too many unanswered questions. Well, let me help you out. God loves answering questions to those who seek him. The disciples asked questions to Jesus all the time in the Gospels. Praise God that those who walked with Jesus for three years, side by side, they had questions, just like you and I have questions. Seek out your answers to your questions, and you will find them. Where do you go to seek out your answers? Go to Pastor Tim with your questions. Email him, call him, text him. Just wait till next week because he's on vacation. Go to Pastor Matt with your questions. Email him, call him. Just wait till next week because he's on vacation too. Go to the elders of the church, Craig Whiteford, George Rebstad, Chris Rep. These men are faithful teachers. They can help you. Uh, Go to your life group facilitators, your ministry team leaders. They will help you wrestle with your questions and find satisfying answers. I want to also give you a uh, a gift today and equip you um, with this great book called More Than a Carpenter, which might answer some of your questions. This book was given to me by my brother-in-law, Frank, in my early 20s, and it completely changed my life. This was a catalyst for my, for my faith. And uh, this book talks about the historical evidence of Jesus, the reliability and the preservation of God's word for over 2,000 years, the historical evidence for the resurrection. And if you're saying, I didn't know there was historical evidence, you should check out this book. It's a story about an atheist who dedicated two entire years of his life to try to disprove Christianity, try to disprove the historical evidence of Christianity. And yet he was so overwhelmed with the evidence that he, uh, that he, in faith, confessed Christ and he became a Christian and he wrote a book to tell you about it. Pick up copies on the back table. There are two back tables there. There's about 30 copies. I encourage you to take one home for your family. And if you already have a copy or if you've read it, I encourage you to take one of those copies, give it to somebody that you think might benefit from it and might want to hear. So some of you might be asking, I, I can't believe yet, Mike. I'm, I'm not... I'm not worthy. I, I have to take care of some things first. I've got to clean up my life. I've got to be a better person. And then, uh, then I'm really ready to believe. And my answer to you is no. A thousand times no. Don't be mistaken. Repentance doesn't work like that. Repentance happens first. Repent and believe, Jesus said. Listen to how repentance works. There is no checklist to be a, being a Christian. You bring yourself first, just as you are. Broken, sinful, ashamed, dirty, damaged. You come before the King Jesus and you bow down at his feet with all of your hostility, all of your self-reliance, all of your bondages, all of your uncleanliness, all of your sickness, all of your disobedience. You bring him all the guilt that you have. You lay it down. You bring him all your emptiness and you lay it down. You bring him all your anger and you lay it down. You bring him all your insecurities, all your insecurities, and you lay them down at the cross. You bring him your addictions. You bring him your depression. You bring him your fears and you lay them down. You bring him your shame, every part of you that feels unworthy, and you lay it down before the great king and you say, I repent And I believe. And it sounds something like this. My Lord and my God, I believe you can forgive me for my sins and make me righteous. I believe you can regenerate me and give me new life. 
I believe you can restore me and give me peace. I believe you can accept me like your own adopted child. I believe you can rescue me and free me from the evil in my life. I believe you can wash me clean and make me pure and honorable. And when we come to Jesus with this kind of childlike faith and belief, when you repent of your sins and you put your trust in him and only him, then, the, then Jesus looks on you and he says, daughter, your sins are forgiven. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Be at peace. Be free. Be clean. Be restored. You are accepted through my blood and I give you new life. Now come, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Go and make disciples for me to all nations, he says. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's more? Yes, yes, there's more. Jesus has a job for you now. Let's go back into our text here, the next section of our text, starting in verse 7. Jesus sends the disciples out two by two. And I can only imagine what the moment must have been like when Jesus said to the disciples, okay, listen, guys, I'm going to send you out two by two. You're going to have power. You're going to have authority. You're going to have, uh, be able to cast out unclean spirits. Uh, you're going to be um, healing the sick. And, and healing the lame. I can only imagine what those apostles must have looked like. We're going to do what? That, that, that's just what I think. I mean, we're going to, you, can you say that again? Can you repeat that? I mean, there must have been some element of like, wow, we're going to do what? Because they've only been watching Jesus do it, and now Jesus is inviting them to go and do the same. Remember, the purpose of the apostles in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, was to be sent out. That's what the word apostle means. It means one sent out. That is our purpose too. Jesus called his 12 closest apostles to be sent out on mission. He sent them out in pairs. And this tells us that none of us should be lone Christians. None of us are are on our own through this Christian journey. We are to be sent two by two as a community, united And we need one another for our life and ministry. Verses 8 and 9 talk about our reliance on God. These first disciples, they were charged to only take the bare essentials. Now listen, this is not a typical Santoro family road trip. Let me tell you how much our car is packed when we go on a road trip. Okay, These disciples were charged by Jesus not to take anything with them. No extra food, I'm sorry, not to take anything extra with them. No extra food, no extra clothes, no extra bags, no extra money. Why would Jesus do this? So that they would go and fully rely on God's spirit, God's provision, and God's people. Surely the disciples were fed by those they were ministering to. This passage is not prescribing us to ignore uh, packing for our trips or planning for our trips or taking money for our trips. That's not what this is. This is just describing... um, because there are other passages in the Bible which, which talk clearly about not being, being wise, not being foolish. But this is a verse describing a moment in time when Jesus wanted the disciples to be fully reliant on his power. And you know what? We need to live on mission too and be fully reliant on God. 
when the apostles were to get to a town, verses 10 and 11 say that they were supposed to stay in these towns, establish a connection with somebody in the community, and stay there. Not bouncing around from place to place. Not, they get somewhere, they heal people, and then somebody says, oh, you're the healer, come stay at my house. No, no, no. They were to stay at the house they first arrived at. Um, they established a home base, and they got the message out to the rest of the community. However, if they were not received, Jesus says that they, if they were rejected that when they leave that place, they were to shake the dust off their feet. Now, Judea was a really rocky place, and this kind of a, a symbolic gesture, this, kind of this was a powerful symbol that when the disciples faced rejection, they were to be leaving the town behind, taking nothing with them, not even the dust. Verses 12 and 13 here, as we come to the end of this passage, Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God was at hand, he said, repent and believe. And he tells the disciple to carry the same message. It says here, the disciples went out and called people to repent. We carry the same message that the disciples carried. We are heralds of God, of, of, of good news. But not only does the good news come from the word, it comes from deeds as well. Deeds of power, driving out the devil, serving and healing in Jesus' name. First Thessalonians says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I'll invite the worship team to come up as I close. This is an important point. True believers are given a great privilege to be sent out on mission for God to give testimony to others. You and I believe in Jesus, that he was, we believe in Jesus of Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago as the Messiah. We believe him to be the chosen one, the Son of God, not because we spent time physically with Jesus, not because we saw him perform the miracles with our own eyes, not because we heard him cast out demons with our own ears, not because we heard his profound teaching with our own ears, but rather we believe because of the testimony of those who did, the testimony of the disciples who walked with Jesus and were eyewitnesses. It was through their testimony passed down to us and through the power of the Holy Spirit that we came to know Jesus and believe. And if you are sitting here as a believer in Christ, praise God that there was a Christian in your life who shared the good news of Jesus with you. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you came to believe. And now as a disciple, it's our job to spread the good news and share the gospel with others so that they too may come to repent and believe and have new life. Listen, Jesus puts us on the front lines in bringing his kingdom into the world. We are on the front lines. God includes us in his work. We don't just sit on the sidelines and watch Jesus and cheer him on, but Jesus brilliantly invites us to follow in his footsteps and join him on the field, on the battleground, and we join him not alone, but two by two, and united as one community. That is called the church. And we stand firm together as the church, and we spread the good news of the gospel for all those who need to hear it. We go out on mission for God and with God and through the power of his Holy Spirit who dwells in us. What a great joy and privilege we have to serve the king. To believe in him so deeply and confidently that when we can go out and join him, 
we get on the plane and trust Him. My call to you is to repent and believe and be on mission. Be sent out to your homes, to your workplaces, to your communities, to your schools, to your classmates, to your teammates, to your friends, to your neighbors, to strangers, and be on mission for God. Amen.